Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. In 1943, a psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow wrote a paper for the journal The Psychological Review titled A Theory of Human Motivation, where he introduced his idea that human beings are motivated by a hierarchy of needs. According to Maslow, the most basic needs we have as human beings are physiological needs, things like oxygen, food, water, shelter, and sleep. After physiological needs come what he called safety needs, things like health and adequate property and resources in order to obtain the more basic needs like food and shelter. Then after safety needs came what he called belonging and love, which are things like family and friends, intimate relationships, and a connection with a community. Following belonging and love was self-esteem and then self-actualization. And although Maslow himself never put these categories into a pyramid, they were later organized that way. You probably have seen this in the textbook at some point in your life, and this came to be known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. For Maslow, this hierarchy was primarily a way of explaining human motivation, and his theory was that human beings must start at the most basic level and have those needs met before seeking out the next category and the next category and so on. And while modern research has shown that there's quite a lot of overlap between these categories and we, we can't really move linearly from one category to the next, his core idea that some needs are more basic than others is still widely accepted and used in various circles today. Now, one interesting part of Maslow's hierarchy that received some initial feedback and criticism pushback early on was where he placed love and belonging as this third category after physiological and safety needs but before self-esteem and self-actualization. Those who were critical of this piece of the hierarchy argued that surely connection to others is a good thing. We can all agree upon that but was connection really more basic, more important to human flourishing than something like confidence or morality or creativity or purpose, which were higher up on the hierarchy? In other words, people were arguing, isn't our need to be a morally good, successful, driven person more basic, or at least equally as basic, as our need for connection to other people? Isn't a successful individual who lacks connection just as well off, or maybe even more well off, than someone who is connected to others but isn't successful in other areas of life? Maslow didn't think so. And modern research has shown that if Maslow got the order wrong when it comes to love and belonging, to connection, uh, it wasn't that he had it too foundational. It's actually that he may not have had it foundational enough. Listen to some of these recent studies on human connection. Some of this is really fascinating. They've done MRI studies over the last decade that have shown that social pain, meaning the experience of being left out of an activity, left out of a group, or just missing someone that you care about, actually activates similar networks in your brain to physical pain. 
That means that your brain is interpreting a lack of connection to other people in a similar way as it does when you have a headache or you break a bone or you're extremely hungry or thirsty. And this one was really crazy. They took a study where they took people who were experiencing loneliness and split them up into two groups. One group they gave Tylenol, which is a physical pain reliever, and the other group got a placebo. And those studies showed that the people who took Tylenol for their loneliness felt better and less lonely after taking the medicine than those who took the placebo. And the conclusion of these studies together was that social pain and physical pain are very similar experiences neurologically. And the point is that we experience the same harmful effects on performance and well-being and flourishing in the world when we lack connection to other people as we do when we're in significant physical pain, extremely short on sleep, or hungry. In other words, connectedness is actually right up there with food, water, and safety as one of a human being's most basic needs in order to flourish in the world. It's really cool that science has confirmed this for us, but God told us this was the case 3,000 years ago when the book of Genesis was written. God created food, he created water, he created this world where we could flourish, but when there was only one human being made in his image, he said it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. He created another. We were created this way for connection. And we really don't need science or even the scriptures to tell us this, do we? We all know deep down that we need community. We all seek connection with others in our world, and we're all hurt when we lack those kind of connections. And based on the latest statistics, many people in our world are hurting. There's a recent worldwide survey on loneliness found that 24% of people 15 or older in our world are currently experiencing a lack of connection to other people. But how is it possible that we're living in the most connected time in human history, and yet one out of every four people feels disconnected? I think the biggest reason is because most of our connection is curated and controlled. It's not genuine connection. This shows up most obviously on social media, but I don't even have social media, and I know how easy it is to do this in the real world as well, to present a controlled and curated version of myself to other people. We live in a world where it's more natural for us to perform and conform, to work really hard to be someone or something that we're not, to prop up the good in our lives and mask over the bad in order to fit in. We do it at work, we do it at school, we do it with friends, we do it with family, and we even do it at church. And the result is that we know a lot of people, we're around a lot of people, but we aren't really connected to people. It makes me think of Rudolph, and I know that we're past the point where we should be talking about Christmas movies at this point, but stick with me for just a second. Rudolph is my wife Maddie's favorite Christmas movie, but the first time that we watched it with our daughter a couple years ago, we realized just how terrible the message of Rudolph actually is. You guys know the story. Rudolph is a reindeer who's born with a red nose that glows. It's not normal. And when he's born, his dad and Santa are disgusted at his nose. And so Rudolph and his parents try to cover his nose with different things, but he eventually gets found out. Rudolph's friends make fun of him, and he's not allowed to play or to train with the other reindeer. And so Rudolph runs away. And fast forward to the end of the story, and there's this big storm. Santa won't be able to deliver the presents, but then he realizes that Rudolph has this nose that glows, and Rudolph knows how to fly. And so if Rudolph leads the reindeer team pulling the sleigh, Santa will know where he's going and be able to deliver his presents. And so now, all of a sudden, everyone loves Rudolph, and they lived happily ever after. 
but they only love Rudolph because he's useful to them. They don't love Rudolph for who he is. And so here's the bottom line and where we're going this morning. In order to flourish in our world, you need community. But not just any community. You need a community where you're welcomed for who you are and where you don't feel the need to perform or conform in order to fit in. You need a community that isn't built on getting to the top or accumulating more, but is built on love for others. In order to flourish in the world, you need a community where you don't have to hide your red nose, whatever that is for you, but are accepted, red nose and all. We need a better community. And the good news is that in John 13, which is what we'll look at this morning, we find such a community. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word. We'll read out of John chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. And you can grab a seat. So we've got another famous section from the life of Jesus as our passage this week, which is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And John begins the story by giving us a little bit of context when he says that this took place before the Feast of Passover. And the context here is really easy to miss, but it's actually really significant. So before we jump into the story in John 13 itself, we need to lay out a bit of the background. If you're new to the Bible or just by way of reminder, we have four books in the New Testament called Gospels that tell the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet is only found in the Gospel of John. However, if we had kept reading through verse 30 of John 13, we would have read something that is included in the other Gospels, which is when the disciples ask Jesus who is going to betray him, and Jesus tells them that it's the one who is eating the bread that's been dipped in the bowl, which identifies him as Judas. 
And if that scene sounds familiar to you, it's because that part of the story is found in both Matthew and Mark as part of this final meal that Jesus has with his disciples on the last night he has with them. When he broke bread and drank, um, drank wine and told them that this bread and wine represented his body and blood, which was to be poured out for them. And so there's enough clues in John 13 to tell us that even though John doesn't include Jesus talking about the bread and the wine representing his body and blood, this night when Jesus washes the disciples' feet is the Last Supper. And it's really easy to miss the context here. I don't really ever remember knowing that the foot washing took place at the same night as the Last Supper, but it actually adds an incredible layer of depth to this story. Jesus, the Son of God, washing his disciples' feet would have been significant no matter when he did it, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but the fact that he did it during this particular meal makes it even more significant. Chances are you know something about this meal, the Last Supper. We remember it every week here at Redemption when we take communion together. If communion is new to you, you've probably at least seen a picture of Da Vinci's Last Supper painting. This meal, this Last Supper, is probably the most famous meal ever eaten in the history of the world. But the significance of that night for Jesus and his disciples goes much deeper than a famous painting or even the practice of communion. Because this meal took place around a Passover meal. And Passover was and still is one of the most significant and celebrated Jewish holidays that remembers how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And in Jesus' day, part of the Jewish celebration of Passover would be to share a meal with your family, consisting of unleavened bread, which represented and remembered how Israel had to quickly flee from Egypt and thus didn't have time to make leavened bread. Lamb, which remembered how God told the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost during that fateful night that led to Israel's rescue from Egypt. And then wine, which some people say represents something and has symbolism, and other people say they just had wine because it's a holiday, and that's what you do on holidays. But Passover as a whole, of which this meal that Jesus is eating is a central part, was one of the high points of the year for a Jewish family, and it was intended to do a couple of things. Number one, it was intended to remember the Exodus, which was the greatest act of Yahweh in Israel's history. Number two, it was intended to symbolize and remind the Jewish people of their forgiveness of sins, of their redemption, and of God's victory over those who were opposed to him. And then three, it was also to foreshadow that God was going to act in history in a climactic A once again. They were looking forward to the day when God would return to forgive sins, redeem his people, and achieve victory over those opposed to him. And so Passover was not just any holiday. This is a holiday packed with meaning. It's like Christmas or Easter for Christians. And Jesus celebrates Passover just like any Jewish person would do. But his celebration that we get recorded in all four Gospels is anything but ordinary. So imagine you're one of the 12 disciples for just a minute, and you're getting ready to celebrate this Passover meal. This is something that you've done every year of your life. You know how it goes at this point. And you're doing it with this rabbi, Jesus, who you've been following around for the past couple of years. And he takes a piece of bread at the meal, and he says, eat some of this. This is my body. That's kind of weird for someone to say that, okay? Then he takes a cup of wine and says, drink some of this. This is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We're past weird at this point. This is, we're used to this story by now, but if we were there, this would have been really crazy what Jesus was saying. And remember, this isn't 
just ordinary bread and wine at an ordinary meal. What Jesus did would have been bizarre whenever he did it, but the fact that he does it at this Passover meal is loaded with significance. Jesus isn't just saying this bread and wine are representing my body and blood and I'm going to die. He's actually equating himself with the symbols of Passover. He's saying this Passover bread, this Passover wine is my body and my blood. Jesus is ultimately equating himself with what Passover represents. And so if Passover remembered forgiveness of sins, redemption and victory for God's people that took place in the past and then pointed forward to the day in which God was going to do it again... The fact that Jesus is putting himself at the center of this meal and saying, I am this bread and wine, is he's communicating that that day is here. The day when God is going to do all this again is here, and I, Jesus, am the one in and through whom it's taking place. Which means that the Last Supper is far more than just a famous painting or a practice that we still do today. It's Jesus' announcement to his disciples that God is climactically acting in history once again to forgive sins, redeem people, defeat enemies, and build a new people of God in, through, and built upon Jesus. Jesus had been hinting at a lot of this with his disciples over the years. He'd been revealing it to them in parts, but now he's powerfully making this clear to them through the rich symbolism of the Passover and his final night with them. There's so much more that we could dive into and say about that, but what does that matter for us this morning when we're talking about connectedness? Well, part of what all of this means is that one major thing that Jesus intended to do in the world is to build a new community. The first exodus resulted in the creation of the nation of Israel, a people set apart for God in order to bless the world. And now God's new climactic act in history is, through the person of Jesus, is intended to create a new people of God, the church. Jesus is finally, at at last, fulfilling one of the oldest prophecies in the scriptures that through Abraham, through Israel, not just Israel, but all the nations would be blessed. All of the symbolism and imagery of the Last Supper points to the fact that Jesus didn't just come to save individual people. He came to create a new people of God. And that this people of God would no longer be set apart by temple worship or Old Testament law keeping, but that they would be set apart by Jesus himself. In other words, God is creating a new people of God where the only requirement to take part is Jesus. To be part of the people of God in the past required adopting the practices of Israel, going to the temple, sacrificing animals, circumcision if you're a male, keeping the festivals. It was a lot of work. It's similar to our world today where if you want to get into certain communities, it takes a lot of work. If you want to get into a prestigious college, you have to have high test scores, perfect grades, and hours and hours of community service. If you want to Make the sports team. You have to have skills that are good enough. If you want to join a country club, you have to make enough money. Other communities may require you to look a certain way or think a certain way. But in Jesus' community, all that's required to join is Jesus. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to conform to a mold to be accepted. You simply have to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. That Jesus is Lord and God. That he's the fulfillment of this Passover meal. That in Jesus, there's forgiveness and redemption. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is building a new community where connection is not based on performing or conforming. Jesus' new community is called the church, and this is what the church is called to be, a place where people are welcomed in and accepted based on no other merit than Christ himself. Now just to state the obvious, 
No church does this perfectly. Our church doesn't do this perfectly. But the beautiful ideal of Jesus' community to which we ought to strive is a community of people made up of different backgrounds, different skin colors, different amounts of wealth, different political ideas, different skill sets who are united around the person of Jesus and are free to be our true selves in the midst of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But how does that work? In a world where a community like that is almost impossible to find, how can the church actually be this type of place? And that's where the foot washing comes in. Well, most Jews in Jesus' day were looking for a Messiah, who were looking for a Messiah, expected that Messiah to be this political ruler who would rescue Israel from the Romans just like God rescued them from um, slavery in Egypt. In other words, the, the leader of the community they were looking for was one that was powerful and strong and mighty, and not unlike the leaders and communities that we see in our world today. And so if Jesus has just made this announcement to his disciples that uh, he's fulfilling Passover, that he's, he's kicking off the new exodus, the disciples were probably thinking, okay, it's finally time. Let's go defeat the Romans. Let's go rescue our people. In fact, Luke's version of the story actually ends with the disciples arming themselves with swords. That's why Peter in the garden later that night has a sword when he cuts off the guy's ear. But is that what ought to characterize this new community centered around Jesus? Well, what does Jesus actually display? And this is where John 13 comes in. What actually happens here? And John says, during supper, which again is the last supper, packed with everything that means that we just reflected on, Jesus rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. This is such a strange scene for us. It's hard to imagine what this would have been like because we don't do this kind of thing today. But they lived in a world where the roads were dirt, they were dusty, they wore sandals, and so foot washing was a normal thing. It was considered common courtesy when you entered someone's home that you would wash your feet, especially before eating a meal. And most of the time you would just wash your own feet. There'd be a little basin, a towel, and you wash your feet as you enter the home. But if you were coming to someone's house who had a lot of wealth, there might have been a servant there to wash your feet for you. But this was not something that anyone would ever do for a friend or even a family member. You would only wash your own feet or a servant, the lowliest of servants, would wash your feet. And yet... During this dinner in which Jesus is announcing himself as the culmination of the God of the universe's plan to save the world, Jesus takes off his outer garments, gets down on the floor, and washes his disciples' feet. This wasn't just a nice, generous gesture that he did for them. This was a radical, category-shattering act of service. We see that in the fact that Peter is so confused he can't even understand it. First he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Then he protests and says, you shall never wash my feet. Then Jesus tells him, if I don't wash you, you'll have no share with me. And Peter doesn't want that. So finally he gives in and says, Lord, then just wash my whole body. To which Jesus responds, that's not necessary. You're already clean. And it's a confusing back and forth. But Jesus' point is that Peter's ultimate cleansing does not come from Jesus washing his feet. It comes from trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. Peter's ultimate cleansing, our ultimate cleansing as well, doesn't come through rituals like foot washing or any other ritual. It comes from believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who's bringing forgiveness of sins and redemption to the world. 
But Jesus knows they're confused, so he stands back up, he puts on his outer garments, and he teaches, he explains what he's just done. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I am teacher and Lord to you, and I washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Remember, John's the only gospel writer to include this story. And John, this is the same guy who argued with his brother James about who was the greatest disciple, who was going to sit at Jesus' right hand in Jesus' kingdom, meaning John wanted to be there right alongside Jesus, bringing in the kingdom and ruling over it. But I'm guessing that when John pictured being second in command to Jesus, he probably pictured power and prestige and wealth and fame. Instead, when Jesus is constituting this new community and ushering in his kingdom, Jesus demonstrates what it looks like to live in this community by acting as the lowliest of servants. And no doubt this would have made a lasting impression on John. Maybe that's why he's the only gospel writer to include it. So here's the second thing that we see about Jesus' new community. It's that Jesus is building a new community where connection is characterized by sacrificial love. What Jesus did for the disciples was incredible, but his reason for doing it was primarily so that he could teach them and teach us through them that radical, sacrificial love, more radical than anything they had a category in their minds for, is what ought to characterize this new community that Jesus was establishing. D.A. Carson put it like this. He said, If the foot washing and the cross are prompted by Jesus' daunting love, The fellowship of the cleansed that he is creating is to be characterized by the same love and therefore by the same self-abnegation or self-rejection for the sake of serving others. Jesus washing his disciples' feet and teaching them to turn around and do the same with the same sacrificial love means that Jesus' community, the church and our church, ought to be a place characterized by this sacrificial love as well. That's the only way that a community as diverse and welcoming as a church can work. Power and status and getting to the top tears community apart, but radical, sacrificial love like the world has never seen is the glue that holds community together. So John 13 shows us that Jesus is building a new community where connection is not based on performing or conforming, and where connection is characterized by sacrificial love. In other words, that community, that connection that we all need, but we all struggle to find, ought to be available and possible in the church. So, How do we make this a reality, though? What do we do with this? How can we grow our connection in this, in Jesus' community in the coming year? I just want to leave you with three simple things. Number one is, let's find a place to belong and a part to play in Jesus' community. And so part of what Jesus came to do, we've seen, is to build a new community. Jesus is saving individuals like you and I, but he's saving us into this new community called the church. And it's never been easier to be a Christian and not be connected to a particular church community, but disconnection from church community is not the path to flourishing and growth as a follower of Christ in our world. Our January sermon series is all about helping you grow towards deep, meaningful life in Christ in 2024, and growth towards that kind of life always involves community. 
In week one of this series, we looked at devotion, and in week two, we looked at development. And last week, Jeff said that devotion without development is shallow, and development without devotion is meaningless. And development and devotion together without connection is cold and weak. Devotion and development without connection leads to a private faith that encourages me, but doesn't do anything to positively impact those around me or the world around me. Devotion and development without connection leads to a weak faith that is easily shaken when the inevitable trials of life come our way and we don't have friends walking beside us to help carry our burdens. Deep down, we know we need connection. Modern science has confirmed it for us. God told us this in his word and created us this way. And the path to flourishing and growth in this new year is not a solitary path. In the last verse of our section this morning, Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The blessed life, according to Jesus, the life of flourishing is a communal life. And so if you're disconnected from a church community, we're inviting you to connect with this one. We want you to know that if you're new to our church, that this is a safe place for you to bring your true self with all your questions and your doubts and your brokenness. We are far from a perfect church, but our vision is to be the type of community that Jesus displayed in John 13. And so whether you're new to redemption or you've been here a while, we want you to find a place to belong at our church. We want to create spaces where you can connect deeply with other people, as you are, without the pressure to perform or conform. And there's a few specific ways we're inviting you to do that. As Jeff said, we're about to kick off our redemption groups in February. Redemption groups are our small groups that are adult small groups that are mixed gender, gender specific. And these are a great place for you to meet and connect with a group of people at Redemption that you can grow to know and to be known by. We've got a few events coming up this winter and spring that are primarily geared towards connection. For women, we have a redemption table event on February 9th, which is just a night of meals in homes around town with no agenda other than to meet and connect with other women. And then in April, we'll have a women's retreat. For men, we've got our retreat first coming up in early March. And then in May, we'll have a men's breakfast, just a chance to meet and connect with other men. We're also launching a new equip class this February that'll give you a bird's idea of the, of the scriptures with, um, that'll help you grow in your faith. But even that is uh, also a great place for you to connect and to meet other people. And then lastly, we've seen a lot of growth as a church in the last year, which is really exciting. And if you want to be a part of helping create more space for people to connect in community, I'd love for you to join us on February 12th for our new Redemption Group Leader training. In addition to finding a place to belong, we also hope that you'll find a part to play in this community. Our desire is that our church would be full of foot washers. Not literal foot washers, of course, but men and women who are serving the church, serving one another, serving our community in a radical, countercultural way. So if you want to find a part to play, there's a few places you can do that as well. First, we'd love to invite you to join a serve team. Our serve teams are all the different ways that you can serve uh, our church, you can serve one another, you can serve our community. But in addition to that, I just encourage you to serve the people that you're connected with at our church. What would it look like for you to serve your small group with the same radical love that Jesus served his disciples with when he washed their feet? What would it look like for you to serve those who are disconnected or new to our community or your neighbors with the same 
radical, category-shattering love? What, how can we all serve this way with the same spirit that Jesus is calling us to? Second, keep your expectations about community reasonable. All of this sounds awesome, but we all know that real churches are not always like this. And that's okay. It's true. Churches are made up of broken, sinful people like you and I. And so until Jesus returns, no church community will perfectly embody what Jesus' new community ought to be like. But if we expect our church to be perfect, then that is a recipe for disappointment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, said, The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. What he meant was that if we dwell on our dream of the ideal perfect community, we will inevitably be frustrated, disappointed, and do damage to the community. But if we simply love those around us the best we can, knowing that they are going to let us down and that no community is perfect, then we will help create the kind of community that we long for. So just know, community is messy. People at this church will let you down. I will let you down. Our staff and our pastors will let you down. You will disagree with people. Every community that has ever existed has experienced disappointment and division. What makes the difference is whether we can forgive and continue to love and serve like Jesus did. In this scene in John 13, it's striking that Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him in just a matter of hours. And yet, he washed his feet anyway. He did this thing that was unthinkable for him to do to anyone, any of his friends. And he did it to the one who was going to betray him. May we have the same spirit when disagreements and disappointments come. And then lastly, the only way that any of this works is we look to Jesus. In this episode in Jesus' life, Jesus left the place of honor at the meal, removed his clothes, put on a towel, which was how a servant would have been dressed, got down on the dirty floor, and washed his disciples' feet before standing up, putting his garments back on, resuming that place of honor, and teaching them. And this episode is really just a miniature version of Jesus' entire life. This is what Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians 2. He says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus not only left the place of authority at this meal, this one night in Jerusalem in the first century to wash his disciples' feet. He also left the ultimate place of authority. He left his father's right hand. He left the heavens in order to come and to serve us all. Washing feet was demeaning, but it was only the second most demeaning thing that Jesus would endure that week. It's just the following day he would be hung from a Roman cross. But just like Jesus rose up from washing his disciples' feet and assumed the place of honor at the meal once again, Jesus rose from the grave and assumed his place at the right hand of the Father with all authority over heaven and earth. So Jesus is why a community like this is possible. 
Jesus is why sacrificial love ought to be the norm in our church. Jesus is why this is a place where you can belong without performing or conforming. And so as we seek to be devoted to Christ in 2024, as we seek to develop as his followers this year, let's also lean into community. Let's grow our connection to his church as well. Let me pray for us. Father, very simply, I just ask that you would make us a church like this. Your, your will would be done in our church that by your spirit through your son that you would lead us all into greater connection with your body in this coming year. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.